You're listening to Underscore, a show by the Chicago Graphic Design Club. I am your host, Christian Solorzano, and today I am joined by a co-host, Carson Coppin, a new team member of the club. Thanks, Christian. Super happy to be here. Of course. And together, we're going to be speaking with Chicago designer Benjamin Edgar, who creates objects out of, and I quote, anything ranging from cotton to marble, characterized by a mix of irreverence and intense attention to detail. He integrates a passion for industrial design, contemporary culture, environmentally conscious consumer goods, and education, with his work spanning across a wide range of mediums and practices. And also in this conversation, Benjamin provides insight into his creative process, which consists of a meditative presence, discipline, and a dedication to gathering inspiration from unexpected places such as traffic cones and the mundane. So he'll define what he refers to as emotional problems and how he solves them through an entrepreneurial spirit that embodies experimentation, play, and utility. This is evident through some of his most notable projects, such as the single cigarette holder and iBeam keychain. So as always, thank you so much for listening. We hope that you find this conversation as inspiring as we did. And thank you so much for your support. So we'll talk soon. Enjoy. Good morning, Ben. Thank you so much for being on our on our show today. How's it going? It's good. Um, I'm in a hotel room in New York, halfway packed, but um, yeah, moving between meetings. Great. Well, I appreciate your your time. I know you're a really busy person. Not completely. It's more just maybe a little disorganized. The time is on the weekends, I think. Um, so I want to start our conversation. So this so this podcast, the show is called Underscore, and we primarily focus on speaking with with graphic designers. And and creatives. And we want to start by asking you to maybe speak to us a little bit about the the role that graphic design has played throughout much of your work and maybe define what graphic design, what that what that means to you. You know, I think it's interesting because I've been looped into the graphic design kind of community or, you know, I think by some sort of adjacency to design in general or now industrial design. I mean, for me, it a lot of the graphic design that I find myself personally most attracted to is, is a result of a process rather than a, like a mechanical process or a manufacturing process or a limitation, maybe the material has or something like that is interesting to me. And what that then dictates the design can look like some friends of I, some friends of mine and I call it accidental design. Mm -hmm. You see it a lot, like kind of municipal settings, like uh, in cities, uh, you know, waste removal stuff or or in manufacturing, like heavy manufacturing environments where maybe colors and things like that are dictated by how dangerous an item is to use or how new an item is or something like that. So, I mean, that's where that that's an abstract answer, but that's where graphic design in my world, I suppose, is probably the most interesting where I apply it. It's definitely kind of like the final application after said object or something like that's finished. It's like, you know, what is the brand we're going to put on it? Not to say that a, a brand is a logo, but how are we going to say that this is a Ben Edgar, you know, Ben Edgar stamped product? So it, it tends to be very kind of repetitive. I think, uh, I don't know, reduced. I don't like the word clinical, but I think maybe some people see it that way. Um, and then and my question, how do I define graphic design? I think was the, the other one. You know, this is interesting because this is a conversation I have with friends like kind of endlessly, but it's like, what's the difference between art and design? It's like, well, mm -hmm. design solves a problem and arts only needs to, 
you know, provi provide you an emotional response. Um, but really great graphic design tends to also provide a pretty intense emotional response beyond just the problem that it solved. So for me, there's the classic graphic design that's communicating maybe what a product is or a road sign or something like that. Um, but the really good examples of it, I think, transcend into pretty serious cultural significance, you know, um, if not art. So, yeah, that's I guess that's that's my quick answer on that one. To, to follow up kind of what you were saying in the beginning there, I think like something that immediately comes to mind when thinking of like kind of graphic design in the world, especially like speaking to like a certain color, right? Like how, you know, a yellow safety vest really taking something out of the world. Like I feel like, you know, everything in quotes or, you know, the, the industrial belt that, you know, Ablo and Off-White did, I feel like that is such like a, like a, a prime example of like seeing those things that this feels like something so like, effortlessly in the world and then taken and created to now be evocative of a time and a period mm -hmm. right and i really think i think that's just an exciting way to kind of like work backwards sort of from from the reality around you and then kind of be able to create like a piece in in moment in time of a specific thing well i actually i was just at the um uh, ed exhibit and at the moma and there's there's a question of like is that graphic design was that graphic design at that time or was that art or was it art using graphic design do you see what i'm saying like these things that we're so familiar with some of his work and his uh you could say the same with jasper johns's early work too totally right it, it's that um like i know you talked about in zion one right like that that wanting to be an artist as opposed to like becoming an artist and then start of like un unlearning some of the, the the museum talk I know as you you had called it in that Zion one right of like you show up there you don't you know it's very it's supposed to be this stoic nobody say anything reflect on this but yet it's so we have to all be in here to interact with this thing for it to even have meaning legs if mm -hmm. you will right so just interesting to see design and art kind of always battling back and forth and I feel like it's more more apparent now than it has been in a long time as we're just all becoming more and more consumers, right? I feel like there's also a big aspect of just a participation. And I think when I look at your work, um, Benjamin, to me, it strikes me as like being very participatory, being in, in a conversation with, with, with the person that's engaging with the work. And also it's a little bit about recontextualizing um, like pre-existing mm. things that, you know, already exist and just putting them within a different context. So I think about your cigarette holder and how it's mm -hmm. a cigarette holder but you're recontextualizing it. So you're, you're almost making it become, you're putting the cigarette within a new context. And in, in doing so, I think it, it, it forces the cigarette to become a piece of art. And, and to me, that's what, that's what really fascinates me about, about a lot of the work that you do. Yeah. That thing, it's interesting. That object is turned into, um, it's like almost like a logo now, you know, a mm -hmm. logo from a company. I think when people see it or they, they touch it myself included. And, um, I think it's one part jewelry for your pocket, you know, almost or something like that. It's not jewelry that you maybe wear on your wrist or your neck. And then the other part of it is industrial design. I was like most people's first reaction when they hold one is like, wow, it's a lot heavier than I thought or a lot more solid, which of course I really enjoy heavy objects and, you know, milled objects. And then there's the graphic design element on it. If you can even call it that, where instead of it saying Benjamin Edgar, a cigarette holder or just a cigarette holder, it's given some um character i guess would be a word by saying you know a single cigarette after dinner which is me kind of interacting with the object company part of my marker word mark 
And mm-hmm. I think then all of a sudden people have these memories, myself included. That's kind of where it came from of like, oh, I was in Paris one time and I, you know, it's after dinner and I don't really smoke, but it was like the right context there. And um, so that one's a rather like, you know, it's a three-part emotional journey, I think is what's made that one work the way that it has. So I, I've listened to a handful of interviews with you and you speak about object company responding to um, emotional problems as as being a, a solution to emotional problems. So can you explain to us what exactly is an emotional problem for, for the listener that might be wondering? That's a really interesting way to phrase it that way, because when you remove it from what I, I can now understand someone might be quite confused when I say that. I think when I talk about design and like the really traditional sense of of like, especially industrial design, it's like this wheel needs to be perfectly round so that when mm-hmm. it rolls, it rolls perfectly. That is design and it requires quite a bit of work to make something work like that. I'm not that level of industrial designer or like the iPhone is probably the best example where it's like that is design. It needs to work really, really well or no one would be using it nearly as much as they are or it'd be cumbersome and cell phones have become, you know, such almost like um, they have to be designed like 99.9% perfect, or you'll just go to another brand, you know, like why, why would you use something where the screen doesn't respond quickly? And those are more like tactile technical design things. When I say emotional design problems, that's almost selfish in a sense. It's like, okay, so why are you making a cigarette holder beyond hoping that it has some commercial success or something, which is not really where I start my projects. Um, I'm making them because I, I think what's the quote culture is everything you don't need. So after you have everything in life that you need, you express yourself by the things you either acquire or keep around you or how you might dress yourself or, or communicate. And those are emotional things. Um, so I'm solving an emotional problem and it's really quite selfish. It's my emotional problem. I want these things. I want to be delighted by them. Um, and then I'm just beyond thrilled when other people are delighted by them as well. And I think a kinship kind of develops from that. So, uh, an emotional problem is really just um, maybe the, maybe the easiest way to say it is a desire to feel an emotion. And Ben, so so uh, listening to listening to you speak now and also um, in other interviews, I I sense a very strong sense of humility in how you speak about about much of your work and much of the things that you do. And I'm always interested in asking creative people. If they see their if they see their work as a as almost like an obligation or maybe a vocation, is there for, for you is there is there a strong line between Ben the person and Ben the 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 creative person or do you just what's your personal approach to a lot of the work that you do? It's a really well phrased question about. I'm getting more people asking me like why don't you talk about it more? Or why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I think there's people who are a little confused that I don't have a bigger ego maybe about it. I don't, I don't really have a direct answer for that. Um, I will say it's incredibly natural. It's not, I'm not pretending I'm not being coy. I, I, this is, you can already probably hear some level of, of inability to articulate right here, almost like some levels of occasionally mm-hmm. discomfort talking about this stuff. Um, I mean, I, I, I named it after myself. So maybe that wasn't the smartest thing I've ever done. I think I could have just called it an object company and that maybe would have been an easier thing for me to do. Um, I The quickest way I can sum it up is like anyone creative I know who's truly creative. Um, yes, we'd all like to make a living from it because it's it's nice to 
to cover your expenses in life and maybe have, have maybe have more than you need to do new things, but we would be doing it regardless. It is a full on compulsion. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's at varying degrees with people, but pretty much anyone in my friend group who I work with directly, whether they're industrial design, graphic, uh, artists, you know, paint, they're doing it when life is good. They're doing it when life is awful. They're doing it when people buying it. They're doing it when people, you know, no one's buying it or no one's heard of them. So um, that would be my answer in terms of like, I don't know if that answers the humility part, but I do definitely abstract myself from it. Um, I don't like, yeah, I, I don't necessarily enjoy recognition personally. I think what really excites me is when someone purchases a product and is really happy with it. That's pretty much all I need. Um, or when I, I remember when I launched my site, uh, the object company site some time ago, many years ago, and when it transitioned from people I didn't know to all, I'm sorry, from people I knew to all strangers placing orders, how kind of profound that felt to me. Um, I felt such a sense of freedom from that and such, I felt so, I, I, yeah, it's like, I just wished I could tell all the customers how much I appreciate them. You know, it's kind of an insane thing to transcend um, your friend supporting you into complete stranger supporting you. And how do you how do you go about celebrating those victories? Just curious about how do you how do you celebrate? That's also a really that's an interesting question. I think I mean I can give you some really literal examples. Yeah, please I, please do literal. Yeah. Yeah. If if like there's like say there's a launch day like I have one coming up launching a product this uh, Friday that I've been working on for quite a while, and uh, if it goes really well, I just like to go to a nice dinner. Like okay. that's that to me, or maybe if it's like exceptionally well, um, maybe I'll travel somewhere, but, but I don't really travel super last minute. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I travel about like a week schedule. That is kind of how I book my flights, but um, no, I really just love like a really simple dinner. <laughs> oftentimes by myself, um, Ralph Lauren grill in Chicago is my, my go-to uh, when I'm here in New York, you'll find me at, Szechuan Mountain House or Yakutori Toto on 55th Street, like just places where I can go. And and I, I, um, it, I'll tell you this, it never gets old when people buy your product. It seems like you're, you're doing a lot of, you're leading with intuition. You're creating these things that you're hoping that people will be interested in. And it seems like people, people are, continue to, to be interested in, in a lot of what, what you're doing. So for for the listener, I, I think when it comes to creativity, there's there's two aspects. There's there's definitely I think there are some people that might overthink things or try to get everything to be as crystal clear as possible, yeah. whereas other conversations that I've had with people, others almost don't know what they're doing. They're just sort of doing it and hoping that it works. And and oftentimes it actually does. And a lot of it, it always seems, seems to be just from this sense of leading with intuition. So can you walk us through the entire process of an idea, like just the concept all the way to, you know, seeing the entire project through, do you sketch on a napkin and a bunch of notes on your iPhone? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you go about that? It definitely is the the, the notes app um, where a lot of stuff starts. My notes app, like pretty much everybody else is filled with like, single words or like you know like half a sentence or um and i don't use any of like the i don't draw in the notes app with my finger or anything like that i don't really draw much at all in fact whenever i have an idea i um i am illustrator immediately it's kind of how i how i express um an idea is is typically an illustrator Uh, my work is so kind of angular and square that it's fairly easy to make a sketch that's 
kind of pixel perfect, if that makes sense. But but in terms of the, I think maybe what you're getting at, or maybe what I want to like think about more is like, where does it even come from before? What what prompts you to open the notes app, right? Like what where did it start at all? Um, there's a few times where I can remember having like really clear. I'm actually staying at the hotel right now in in New York. That I remember sitting at a desk very similar to the one I'm sitting at now, where I was like, "What about like a single cigarette holder?" You know, and that was one of my fastest products to market. That's relatively straightforward to make once we had the CAD files and a, a you know a manufacturer that was down to do it. I think it was only like three or four months from from idea to being on sale, um, and I probably could have gone quicker. That one though, I can remember having this the sentiment but I'm not sure exactly where I was from. Maybe I'd just come back from Paris and that was kind of part of it. Um, uh, you know, the the smoking part of that object to me is really not even like the point. It's like that it exists is kind of the point, if that makes any sense. Um, so yeah, I'm giving you a really awful answer to this because um, I don't have a good, I, I don't have a process. Um, I do believe though, like, and you'll hear this from a lot of the great artists that, um, don't sit around and wait for inspiration. You need to you need to do the work. You need to show up to an empty canvas, whatever your canvas may be. Um, mine is more about immersing myself in things that are interesting to me. I'm a big uh, I'm a big fan of Jeff Koons quotes and his his huge one is follow your interests. And that seems so easy, but you can really get like it, it's like a form of walking meditation basically to be constantly aware of the things around you. The, typefaces and the colors and the materials and the, all of those things. I think that's why cities are so interesting to me. And that then prompts things. Like I might walk past a, an orange cone. I've been, I've been noticing orange cones a lot lately. I'm like, there must be something going on there that that's going to express itself in an object later. Um, and you just have to trust yourself that, that that sensation might feel really weird. It even feels a little awkward to sit and talk about orange cones here, but like, that's what we're doing, right? I mean, that's the context for this stuff is like really paying attention to the tiniest minute things that grab your um, your mental interest and make you feel a certain way and trust that those are leading you to some sort of internal thing that you feel like you might need to express. Absolutely. And then from there, I have two or three friends, uh, one specifically Rotenda. Um, he's based in Munich, um, but he's actually in New York this week. Um, who helps me on uh, the the really technical engineering side of things if I'm not capable of doing it myself. Um, and then it goes off to a supplier. We get a sample made. Samples for all my metal stuff I can typically get done in like an insane timeline, like 10 to 12 days, um, which is just like crazy. I mean, it basically feels like 3D printing. So kind of the magic of CNC. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, I, my... A more a more technical answer for you, a more like literal answer would be is from the moment I have an idea, I feel a deep level of responsibility to get a sample made as quickly as possible to see if I like this thing rather than letting it hang in an idea land. Because we all know that sensation where you talk to your friends about this, this idea you have, mm -hmm. and it seems to fade over time, the less you make it reality and keep it in idea land. So I try and um, like the product I'm launching this Friday, only maybe four or five people have seen it. We've been working on it for like three months. I just like that. I'm like, I didn't let it go too far in ideal land. I made it. I, I went through the process. I think there's something really uh, like, thank you for the, the thorough front to back um, mm -hmm. answer just on how, how does anything even right, like get created. But I, yeah. I really want to hone in on what you said about the state of like meditation or feeling like constantly being in it 
Um, Cause I think that's one thing about your work and even the events and things that I, I tend to come to that, you know, either you're hosting or you, you happen to be a part of, and it, it always feels like you have a strong sense of being there, of just being there to learn and develop. Right. And, and how do I, how do I get in so that I'm constantly learning and developing things uh, rather than right. Like, you know, just, you know, let's release a single cigarette holder in you know, nine different material ways, and then let's make a marble one, right? Like, which, and maybe that would be successful. I don't know, right? I'm, I'm not you, but to, to turn it to a question is how, how do you find yourself in the right areas or being constantly inspired or just constantly, you know, adopting that learner's mindset? Like, do you have, I guess, any, any thoughts or, or process on, on how you're, kind of constantly keeping a fresh mind while still having to sort of like flow your own ideas around. And I, I feel like it can start to be a little insular, but I'm just, I'm curious if any of that. It is insular. Be- it absolutely can be really insular. Um, you know, even talking about eating dinner by myself and things like that. I mean, that's just how I, that's how my brain works. It's like, I find some level of comfort in being insular. I'm learning though that like, you can't be completely insular. Um, you know, it's funny you bring up those events because a lot of those events, I'm not like nervous at those events, but I'm I'm usually happy when they're over because <laughs> I can kind of like, you know, I, I'm not great at small talk um, and things like that. I'm I'm typically more excited. Like you and I tend to talk about products. Um, you know, maybe you'll have the hat we made or a keychain or something. So we'll, we'll talk about those things. And that gives like a good context to talk about. I was out, I was out for a walk uh, last night uh, with Rotunda, who's become just like a kind of a pretty core part of the object company and we were kind of musing on like I don't even know how we end up where we end up sometimes I think um you know if I it's like like, how did I meet all these interesting people in my life how have I ended up in these circles like the only thing I can surmise from it is well one like the classics like don't be an asshole and be be curious I think curiosity is a fountain of youth and kills most negative things in the human condition is curiosity if you truly are curious, it's very difficult to be hateful or racist or all of those different things. Um, but the other one is just to like do, I believe the spirit of creativity is to create, <laughs> to make. And uh, so I go back to like the idea thing. I found myself in a lot of the corners and interesting places in life and the people that I get to meet because I was a doer, even if it was like a really ugly example and half finished um most of my friends are doers they're makers um that's our kinship i think and we don't even have to like each other's work it really doesn't matter actually at all it's just that that you did it um so i don't know if that answers your question but i've i've had you know when i when, whenever someone like asks me for advice or like how are you how is this happening for you i'm like man i don't know either but the one difference i notice is that i i have more i have created more things and not from a materialistic standpoint i'm just saying like i took an idea and completed it and and have you always been like that? Because I know as a kid, you were you you taught yourself to code at thirteen, yeah. and uh, and so so maybe speak to us about what what was your childhood like? Were you have you always been making things? And and maybe what was the culture that you that you surrounded yourself? I know skateboarding played played a really big role, but are there mm-hmm. any particular um, artifacts or objects that? Um, that just left a left a, a strong impression on you that you're you might sort of be continu- continuously inspired by whether you know it or not. I think Legos 
I mean, I know that's like kind of like, a, oh, you know, it's a cute answer maybe, but like, I don't know. I mean, that's a, um, Legos are an interesting like stair step thing. It's like, yeah, you either want to play with them or you don't, right? Which is neither one is right or wrong, of course. Yeah. Um, and then once you played with them and you built the set because you followed the framework that they built or the instructions that they built, you're done with it. Do you leave it as a model or do you take it apart? Do you edit it? Do you, do you play with it more? Do you wish they made a different piece? And now you're starting to get into, uh, I think the moment you feel restricted by Legos is probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm ready to do the next thing. I'm ready to play with something else. So um, they were a huge part of my childhood and I still feel this weird attraction to them when I see a box of them on a shelf or something. I think um, to me, they're such an excellent place for almost anyone I know, whether you want to be an engineer or an artist to begin expressing yourself. Um, I don't know. I just, I found them very fun. Um, they're very tactile. They're not, they're not on a computer, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. kind of nice. Physical. Um, in terms of my like upbringing. Yeah. I mean, skateboarding was huge. I think skateboarding. Um, who's the, who's the director reading his name. He's got the really crazy voice. He did that movie about volcanoes. Werner Herzog. Yes. He did an interview um, where the guys from, man, was, there was a skate magazine. Either way, they interviewed him and, it was, I don't know if you've seen it, if you haven't, when you jump off, check it out. And his voice, you know, he's on a Zoom call and he's interacting with me. He's like, I don't fully understand what you guys are doing with the skateboarding, but I know you're my people because you're being so repetitive and falling again and again and again until you get this trick and it's completely freeform. It's not a team sport. Mm -hmm. And I think he articulated really clearly from such a outside perspective, what makes skateboarding seem to be so core in the creative industries it's very expressive it's very hard <laughs> extremely hard physically painful and the reward rate's pretty low um so like i think i was very much conditioned by skateboarding and then there's the community aspect of it and there's a very tribal aspect what brands do you wear what size skateboard do you do you know what kind of are you a flip trick guy are you a stair set guy like what like what are you into um so that was a big part of it and then my parents you know my parent my father was a, was a carpenter and a co contractor so I was around physical things being made, which is a big deal, I think, to watch something go from some ugly studs to a completely finished wall. And uh, my mother was was very into art, and we, and on our field trips and things like that, I was at the Art Institute quite a bit. So um, I feel very fortunate for that. I just did a, a small look, and it, it was Jen uh, Kim or Ian Kim. Hmm. However, I thought I, it was Jen uh, Kim. Yeah, that ended up doing the um, interview. Speaking of specifically skateboarding, because I think like one thing that always sticks out to me with skateboarding in particular is like the boards or the t-shirt graphics or the work jackets. Like did any of that merchandise or, or those objects speak to you in any particular way? Yes. Anything Paul Peralta back in the day, Bones Brigade was like huge for me. Um, the, I would still, I should probably research it. I, I did see a, a technical drawing of it, but the Ripper as it was called, it's a skeleton that rips through the screen or is ripping through a t-shirt or whatever. And then the Paul Peralta logo shows up underneath them. Um, is still incredibly interesting to me. Um, there's, I don't, I, I, some of it's nostalgia perhaps, but just incredible. And then I would love that kind of line drawing, almost tattoo style drawing and the crazy swords and the skulls, but I never found that to be violent. I found it almost like it had like a sense of humor to it maybe, or a really theatrical sense to it. And then they would do their Swiss bones bearings, which were probably my first introduction to quasi-Swiss design, 
right? Or that whole kind of like sans serif approach. And I was like, this contrast between the Ripper and the and the Swiss Bones bearings was really intense. And I, who knows, like maybe I'm discovering it right here as I'm talking, like an interest in contrast maybe came from that. Yeah, so many, so many conversations that I have always speak about the skateboarding culture in the 90s. And the, and I think there's there's been an everlasting ongoing revival of like the grunge aesthetic. I also see like filters, like Photoshop filters and all these different effects that will make your 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 two-dimensional like art piece like digitally appear as if it was printed and, and aged and all that kind of stuff. So and risograph, yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So there, so there is like a huge, I think, appreciation. And I think even it's interesting to see younger generations that were born, you know, in the 2000s, even them looking back at the 90s and and really just connecting with a lot of that work. And, and I've been asking myself, what if I had to answer um, the question of like, what was the best decade for graphic design? I think for me, it would be it would be the 90s. What significance do the 90s have for you? Probably a little bit of nostalgia. I mean, yeah. You know, I, in the '90s, I was you're you know I was uh, to date myself. I was ten years old in '91. So you're starting to find some autonomy, right? And yeah. how you express yourself or the things that you're attracted to. Um, I will caveat this though. I um, I don't know if there's a best era, even though sometimes I think when we look back at history, there absolutely were best eras. <laughs> but um, of of anything really. Um, I just am so careful about nostalgia. Um, it's a really powerful drug, um, really, really comforting. Um, and you're seeing it with rose-tinted lenses almost always um, because you, I don't know, maybe because our brains are good at forgetting the bad stuff or something or the mediocre things that were that were occurring during that time. So, um, and I also think it really limits you. This is, by the way, I'm not criticizing your question. I hope it doesn't sound like that. I think it limits your view of the right now and it limits your ability to create the new thing because at some point that bones ripper or those Swiss bearings that I keep referencing were totally new designs and they were totally, the, the creator was unsure, maybe even their friends were unsure and they did not know that they were creating a classic. Um, so I think at any moment in time, at any second in your current moment in life you could be potentially creating something just as powerful I, yeah because it, it seems like a lot of the the greatness about the 90s was mostly just what, what how people were responding to the technology of the time so it's more yeah. so like the process and like the ethos of creating that i think corral draw <laughs> yeah like it's it's just it's really fascinating and i think i'm excited to see what people are going to be doing that what, what people are doing today with things like such as you know the AI or 3D printing or a lot of these newer technologies because it's the same same spirit something new what are you going to do with absolutely it? same spirit I agree with you well I'd be curious Ben if you had any thoughts on like I know this is kind of probably like the the hot topic that everybody asks these questions in terms of just AI and things in design because mm -hmm. I know like right, the the series Chuck Anderson was putting out with those like kind of auto filled uh, like different textures that he had generated through Photoshop. And I remember seeing you comment of like, this feels like, you know, you're really taking the program, you know, to 80, 90, hundred percent of the capability yeah. of what it can, can be used. Right. Of like, before I'd seen that, I wasn't even, I wasn't even understanding how these things are being done. So just curious if, if you had any thoughts, if, if AI and, and those kind of things sparks any sort of interest in you. Yeah, the, the work that Chuck was doing, I believe it was the one that I was really attracted to. And he and I have been talking about how we could might, you know, create something together using it. But it was like, I believe a screw going through marble 
or a screw growing through an ice cube or something like that. And um, yeah, his work, I mean, he pushes those programs to their absolute nth degree. And I think most all of us probably use Illustrator 5 to 8% of its capacity throughout the day. We don't, we're not using it. And, and it's really fun to watch what he's doing. Um, my approach to AI, you know, it's funny, Chuck and I were talking the other day. And he, he found some graphic thing I did. I think it was for the brilliance, maybe. So it must have been 2006 or something that I did this T-shirt and it's like literally the exact same Helvetica new condensed 57 that I use now. I mean, like I am incredibly repetitive in, in my approach to things. Um, it's really not that much by design. I just found that typeface and I was like, cool, this is it. <laughs> this is all we're going to use. Like I can't imagine, I can't imagine needing anything else. Um, so with that though, there's a danger to get stuck. When I look at AI, I use it every day, which sounds crazy, but I'm using it every day because a lot, maybe not every day, but pretty pretty often is for correcting photos. And like the tiniest thing is if you've got, you need a little bit more margin on the side of this, this, you know, gallery, you know, let's say you took a photo of something on a plinth in a gallery with a concrete floor and a white wall, and you need a little more space above or below when you're, you know, putting it on social or putting up for a product page, Gener generative fill is pretty magic. You know, I mean, it is, it is reducing what used to be either impossible or hours of faking it and still being able to kind of tell that that it, that it was there. So from a really technical standpoint, sure, I'm, I'm using it in terms of its aesthetic because it already has an aesthetic, which is interesting, just how like NFTs had an aesthetic. Um, we'll see if it sticks around. Is this the 90s of skateboarding for AI? And we're going to look back on this and be like, holy shit, like this is what a wave. Maybe. Um I don't have a good answer because I haven't fallen in love with any of it yet in terms of me wanting to use it my own. And um, I find the uncanny Valley thing affects me pretty intensely just being direct and personal. There's images and things where I'm like, I don't like this. And I, and it's like almost like my DNA is telling me I don't like it as opposed to like my aesthetics or something like that thing. It's triggering something in me that's so close to fake and so close to real that we're struggling with how to, how to consume it. I think. I also Absolutely. just like objects. So it's like, I think so much of my life, I think in the weight of something, the temperature of something, and those things are not necessarily yet communicated by the AI aesthetic that we're familiar with. Two two questions immediately off of what you were just saying there. I guess just one immediately response to uh, something that you had said um, in terms of like creating objects and moving things um, was it wasn't only like the material of something um, that you're hoping to convey an idea, but also the price of something which I thought was a very interesting idea. And I'm curious to know if you could, you could speak from that at all of as like the price of an object is something to an express an idea. I thought that was fascinating. I have so many friends who are like sick of me texting and being like, how much should this cost? Or how much should retail be? And they're like, well, how much did it cost to make? I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to say what, what is like a reasonable and we'll figure out I'll either make lower margin or I'll be really lucky and I'll make, I'll make a good margin. The cigarette holders, for example, um, I think my cost is like landed. They're about $29. So I'm not going crazy with that. Then there's some packaging and some shipping and things like that. So we don't make like crazy money on those. But then I have other items that are higher margin. Then I have stuff like the mug, the stainless steel mug that I think is like $400 um, that I think I lost money on when I sold them. I think the, the first kind of production are there $425 or something to produce them, let alone the packaging and stuff. In terms of a tool, yeah, it's hard to ignore that uh, money is is a form of communication. <laughs> so it's like if I make my cigarette holder a thousand dollars and I only sell one, 
that person who has it and pulls it out at night, it's like, holy shit, you know, you got this thousand dollar cigarette holder. That's insane. And I think it becomes something much different. If you make it just precious enough at a hundred or $110 where I have it right now, I think it becomes less throwaway. It doesn't end up in your junk drawer. I think you take the purchase a little bit more serious. Um, yeah, another Coons thing. He gets asked all the time about his prices. And I don't even know if I agree with him on this, but I thought it was an interesting answer. He was like, the more expensive something is, the better chance that humanity will protect it for a really long period of time. And there's a there's a lot going on in that answer. I mean, you can you can pull a lot out of that, I think. So I think it's clearly a tool. I just think for me personally with the object company, I would much prefer my items to be in people's hands and in their pockets uh, or them using them and and hopefully them using them and not worrying about damaging them too much. Maybe a scuff on a bag or, a, a, you know, wearing the hat until it's super sweaty or, you know, those kinds of things to me are, are more interesting to have people consuming them. So it's this, it's this very minute balance of, um, what's the right price to make sure that it seems special, but that it's not painful and that it's not pretentious in terms of how much it, it costs and that there's some level of accessibility. Kind of got one more here that I'd, I'd like to ask you. And then I think um, definitely uh, something we'd like to do here at the end is kind of just like some some quick fire. But I think, of course, yeah. we had to theme it towards the brilliance and knowing, um, you know, the interview questions y'all would ask quickly. But before we jump into those, kind of the last more concepty question I wanted to ask, and this is totally self-indulgent, uh, why why internet blue? I feel like you, there's so many different colors and so many things, and you play in lots of different schemes. But but why internet blue? That one that one seems particular. It is um, back for all my Windows 3.1 heads, maybe even Windows 95. It is the Control Alt Delete screen, so it's just it's like the purest. So like you have three pixels, right? RGB. I believe it's just just the B turned on, if I'm not mistaken. So it's very, very clean, very, very pure. And then QBasic, which was the first, which was Microsoft's version of basic, uh, the programming language, their, their editor, I believe, background color was RGB blue or, or what's the hex, four zeros and two apps, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know. It just speaks to me. I mean, it's I was I was at the moment when we saw there was an Eve Klein piece there. I don't find I don't think it's even like the same color in my brain. It, the 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 internet blue and people are like oh if you could make it make some object in internet blue I'm like well you almost can't because it's it's a it's a projected color rather than a than a pigment. Um, so it'll never really look like what it looks like on the screen. Um, and also I'm wondering if a little bit later in life this is coming to be a little bit clearer to me in my obsession with one RGB and also like yellows and oranges and these safety colors is like I'm colorblind to a decent amount. Like those dots with the numbers in them, like the circles with the dots and the numbers in them, the test that they do. I took it when I was seven and I was like, I thought it was a joke. I was like, there's no numbers in these things. This is like insane. Like, what are you? And I just took one the other day and I can see like, you know, 15% of them. So I, something must be going on that makes me interested in, in really vivid colors rather than tonality. So. Thank you for the for the the insight sure. there. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here to these kind of these rapid fire questions. that we kind of start to get to the end here, and really wanted to respect your time. You know, you've got that hard. No, time by the way, I really appreciate this. This has been an amazing conversation so far. I'm very very thankful. Absolutely, and and thank you for being here. Um, so my first one is like, 
six projects next year. Does that does that still sound right for you? Yeah. I've got I think I've got two done, two or three done. Yeah. So maybe more. Because I didn't really do that many this year, actually, in all fairness. Favorite Chicago neighborhood? Gold Coast, downtown. Favorite material? Mm, 316 stainless steel. Favorite Chicago building? And the Mies stuff is great, right? Like, it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, when you're coming from north from the north side and you're on Lakeshore Drive and you're coming in and you kind of, the, the skyline really becomes quite apparent to you. And then you start getting closer and closer. Um, I believe the Drake is a Benjamin Marshall designed building. I really like pre-war architecture. Or Rosario Candela stuff. So I, I don't know, weirdly, maybe the Drake from the other side, not the entry side, but the other side. Did the Flamingo inspire the keychains, the I-beam keychains, the 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 large sculpture in Federal Plaza? Oh, no. Um, interesting. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. No, the, the I-beam keychains were first part of a deal I did with Notro where they wanted, we were, I was like, let's celebrate some Mies architecture. No one's really kind of talking about it in a streetwear sense. Mm. So we did these t-shirts, uh, Reed Schmidt and I shot these photos um, at various different, you know, Mies buildings in, uh, in the city. And I just can't leave well enough alone. So I was like, we have to make a keychain. And, I, you know, I was like, what else would you possibly make but an I-beam um, to celebrate his work? And so we found a manufacturer in Pennsylvania that did those. They're now made in Shenzhen. But, um, but no, that was purely to celebrate Mies. As somebody who's like becoming obsessed with his work more and more this year, like just like every Barcelona chair is like a uh, a beaming highlight. I have to say, yeah. thank you for that. Um, Uber or Lyft, and what's your rating? Um, I'm Lyft because I Lyft Pink because that gets you like the Divi membership and that City Bike as well. In um, I'm pulling up my rating in um, New York and I think Miami too, but I don't use them in Miami. Um, I was like an Uber guy forever, and you can connect your Delta account on Lyft. <laughs> um, I'm 5.0. Wow, look at that. Star Oof, Look at this guy. Perfect gold stars. Well, because I don't use cars all that much. I'm not in a car. I'm usually on a bike, and the bikes can't give you a negative review. If they could, trust me, they would, because I jump those things and skid them all <laughs> over the place. Do a kickflip on the bike real quick. And last one here. Are there any questions you feel you haven't been asked? I feel like you've been, you've been in a part of a lot of things. You've interviewed a lot of people and you've asked a lot of questions and learned a lot of things from other people, but is there anything you feel like you haven't been asked that you've wanted to talk about and you've been ready to speak your mind on? This is where my, <laughs> it's funny as I feel like it's such an ego thing to be like, you know what, you know what no one's asked me before and they should, you know, I don't really <laughs> have that, uh, but um, yeah, I did a lot of stuff that I, I spoke more this year than I ever, like I've done three podcasts or something, spoke at three universities which is like, you know, three, three, three more on both categories than last year. So, um, I, I, uh, one, I, I find it interesting that anyone wants to interview me. I look at these more as conversations than I do, um, you know, someone with some sort of wisdom to impart. The only wisdom I have to impart is just, just do it <laughs> to, you know, domino effect stuff in life is very real. Um, so, uh, something that someone hasn't asked me, um, what my favorite Rolling Stone song is. I don't know. Just like, <laughs> And what, what's the song? You're really into the history of the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah. Um, probably yeah. Connection. Okay. Or either Connection, which is very kind of a weird one, or Gimme Shelter. Probably if, if Gunda had Gimme Shelter, I think. Well, that was everything I had. Christian, was there anything you wanted to add kind of before we uh, close out here officially? 
Yeah, my I guess my my final question, and it might be might be a big question, but um, I, I'd like if you can to maybe walk us through like what is it what does a typical day in your life look like? Break down your uh your routine for us. It's getting more structured. It used to be a little. There was times where I could be quite listless, and um, I've I think that we all celebrate listlessness because it feels like it should be really relaxing and nice. Um, I've learned that I've been fortunate enough to experience it for long periods of time. It's really not that much fun. Um, after a while, it's, it's it can end up being pretty boring. So I wake up painfully early, whether I want to or not. My body wakes up around like five ish. Um, I try and stay in bed till six. Um, I try and get eight hours every night. I know that's quite popular to talk about, but I, re- I really do. Um, and my life feels so much better when I do. Uh, my ideas are clearer to me. Um, I'm very like organized in the morning you know, get up we you know take a shower we do the face care and skincare routine um make the bed uh, do all those kinds of things uh maybe a podcast depending on the day um, but podcasts for me are before work has really begun there is some email checking going on mobily at this point but the computer doesn't open up until probably nine eight or nine um i would say I try and go for a walk every single morning with my coffee. I don't make coffee at home. I try and go for a walk to go get the coffee. Um, cold, hot, and different. If I can, I walk down uh, to the lake because I live right mm-hmm. in the Gold Coast. So it's not too far for me to walk down to the lake. Just a loop there and back. Um, yeah, and then the then the emails and stuff kick in. <clears throat> I skip lunch. I don't eat breakfast either. <laughs> um, I have an early dinner. Um, I try and stop working pretty, pretty religiously. I try and really stop working at five thirty or six, sometimes earlier. Um, yeah, I try and just like work through the day and then intersperse with a couple walks if I'm feeling stuck. Yeah. And then it's off. Yeah, it's off to a dinner. You know, typically somewhere I can walk to. Um, then documentaries at night. Man, that sounds so boring, but. I love it. Do you have any uh, guilty pleasures? Anything that uh, you, you'd be embarrassed to admit? Single cigarette after dinner. Um, um, paying too much for like Delta Comfort upgrades, you know, something like that. Like totally stupid. You know, it's like you're gonna be on this thing for like two hours, and you're, you know, it's like it doesn't really matter. Um, guilty pleasure. Um, a little bit of a hoarder with the books. Okay. <laughs> you know. It was like it's kind of getting a little overwhelming in my apartment. Um, what's another guilty pleasure? I don't know. Um, I don't do it so much anymore because I just said that like I don't really use Lyft for um cars as much. But I have a guilty pleasure if I'm having a particularly bad day or I'm feeling frustrated or it's cold, I will get a black car when I definitely don't need to get one. <laughs> and yeah. I'm always like a little embarrassed after you're like, that was ridiculous. <laughs> Why didn't you do that? Got to pull up in the spaceship. I mean, sometimes you just you just need to take yourself. No one wants to pull up in front of a nice restaurant and get the Toyota Sienna picking you up. It's like you're getting dropped off at soccer practice, but you know. <laughs> yeah, that might might not be the uh, the most classy way to pull up to the Ralph Lauren restaurant. Yeah, you can drop me off a block early. I'll walk the rest of the way. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Ben. This was great, and I'm so glad that we got to speak. And I hope that in 2024 the Chicago graphic design club could maybe do some sort of collaboration with you somehow. So I'm um, definitely, our doors are always open. I'd be honored again. I'm really like honored to be invited on. I appreciate, um, I really appreciate that the 
the really kind of more philosophical based questions and giving me a, a platform to talk about that or have a conversation with both of you about that. Um, this was really enjoyable. I'm walking away feeling inspired about my day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll see you guys around. All right, talk soon. Have a good one. What a fun conversation that was. Thank you so much, Ben Edgar, for joining us and for, yeah, just spending some time together speaking with us about all the things that we love. And for you, the listener, uh, we are getting ready to finalize and get our publication into production. So if you are unaware, the Chicago Graphic Design Club is launching its first publication called Faculty, and pre-orders are now available to be made. So please visit our website at www.chicagographicdesignclub to secure a copy. We are running a very limited production, so um, yeah, get one before they're all sold out. You can find more information on our website. Talk soon.